welcome back to This Is Our Design, Sound On Sight's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I am Sean Coletti, contributing writer at Sound On Sight, and I am joined, as always, by TV editor at Sound On Sight, Kate Kolzik. Kate, we, well, this is going to go weeks later, but we have just finished celebrating the 4th of July. How do you think Hannibal Lecter would have celebrated the 4th of July? I don't know if he would celebrate the 4th of July. I don't, we don't really to... know where he's from, do we? Well, he's vaguely European. I'm, I'm sure everybody who's read the books is just like rolling their eyes right now, but <laughs> I don't know, you know, I'm not sure. I feel like there's got to be some sort of gorgeous looking and horrific to think about what's actually in it. Red, white, and blue plate he could put together. I could see him doing that, but I'm not sure. I, somehow I don't feel like he's going to have hot dogs and beer. So would each of those red, white, and blue things be different people or different parts of people? Let's just, you know, let's just not focus on that and think about how pretty <laughs> it would look instead. Okay. All right. Um, well, yes, uh, people who haven't read the books might know that I think he's Lithuanian. Um, I'm not entirely sure, but I, I think of the Mas Miguel's and Hannibal as something completely different. But again, uh, completely off topic, but somewhat related to that with regards to spoilers. Just as a reminder, we'll be treating this season of This as, this Is Our Design as mostly spoiler-free. There will be a section near the end of the podcast, which will be indicated in the post on the website, um, in which we will be talking about future things Hannibal-related. So if you are watching for the first time, fantastic. We're all glad that you're watching. This is an awesome show, but... Uh, be on the lookout for that section, and feel free to skip it to remain spoiler-free. And with that, we will introduce our special guest this week from Ain't It Cool News, Steve Procopi. Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much. He, he is Lithuanian, by the way, but he's naturalized French, just so okay. you know. Yeah, there's, there's some French stuff there, but uh, <laughs> whatever. Whatever. This week, we'll talk about Season 1, Episode 6, Entree, written by Kai Yu Wu and Brian Fuller and directed by Michael Reimer. And as a reminder, we'll be drinking various alcoholic beverages on this podcast, uh, hopefully, unless I can't, you know, do it because of my bank account, a different one each week. So uh, th this week, I will be having a bourbon that I've not tried before. I bought it for the 4th of July, and it is uh, Kentucky Vintage, which is incredibly smooth and well worth the relatively small price. Uh, Kate, what are you drinking this week? I'm enjoying a mimosa. I'm running out of things that I can, different types of beverages <laughs> that I can do that aren't just another clearish, you know, alcohol with sparkly stuff. <laughs> um, so, so I thought I would have uh, another clearish beverage with, with, with orange juice this time. So champagne and orange juice. Cheers. There you go. And uh, Steve, what are you drinking? Uh, it's a champagne and uh, chambord, which I guess is a raspberry liqueur. So uh, it was left over from 4th of July, but I figured I'd polish it off here. And this is still a celebration in a way. Yeah, and Hannibal <laughs> would clearly possess the three correct correct glasses to pour all of these in. I'm sure. <laughs> at least one. He's going to have at least one. You know, will he have it at home, at the office, like in, in his a suitcase? In a suitcase, just for <laughs> emergencies. I feel like Hannibal's got to have a man bag, right? Yeah, he definitely does. <laughs> so let's just get started. Um, so to me, even more than last week's episode, this feels like the Jack Crawford hour. So I wanted to begin by asking you, Steve, how this background story that we get with Miriam Blass helps develop your opinion of Jack as a character and 
if you think some of the personality traits that we've seen prior to this uh, are better understood after this rather dark and moving story. Uh, I think I think it, it more than anything it sort of sets things up for the way it's going to go from this point forward. Are we now realizing that he is guilt ridden on so many different levels, uh, both about his wife now and then also about Miriam uh, and her disappearance? And uh, but the whole the whole episode is sort of very the closest I think the show had come up to that point of of sort of telescoping what was going to be, what was going to happen in silence of the lambs. And we've got a few, uh, a few sort of parallels between the episode and, and that, but yeah, as, as a Jack Crawford uh, analysis, it's uh, this, this is his darkest moment to, to date. I think at the time, at least it was um, yeah. He, he's dealing with a lot of crap. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I think, I think, and then it, it only really gets worse when Will starts to, you know, when, when we see where the Will storyline goes, I think he just gets more and feels more and more guilt. Not ne- not necessarily the kind of guilt that's going to make him change his behavior, by the way, but just but he's just there. It's 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 hovering over him like this dark cloud, and uh, he never. I don't think he ever really shakes it. Well, you've mentioned the the tie to Will Graham, and and Kate, do you see? Jack falling into similar patterns based on what we've seen with how he's treated Will uh, and has attempted somewhat to to protect him in some ways and yet also let him off the leash, or is he going about this in a different way? There are some interesting comparisons to be made with Jack and Will and Jack and Miriam, but you know, and I actually also like to think of Alana in relation to to Will and Jack and how that's affecting Jack's treatment of Will because he didn't seem to have an Alana figure for Miriam uh, warning him to maybe back down and offering a um, because Alana is there voicing his fears he can then uh, discuss with her and then choose the you know the opposite reaction as it were whereas with Miriam he doesn't have a counterbalance to discuss how just how deep he should go with her or, or send her. Um, but I think, I think while there are some similarities, it's they're very distinct in that she is that younger agent and, and she is, you know, she's fresh. She's, she's not even an agent yet. And she's, I think just her being a young woman versus Will being, you know, an older man, at least compared to, to Miriam does really affect the way that Jack interacts with will and uh he doesn't feel like he needs to have the same trepidation with will maybe that he would with miriam or somebody like that again because will has more experience and so even though he maybe should have learned a better lesson um in regards to how he uses will to this point in the show um from what happened with miriam he doesn't seem to be making that connection it's Good. I think that you brought up specifically that she is an agent in training because there's been a couple times already in these first episodes where it's brought to our attention that Will is not specifically an FBI agent. And so the parallels are drawn there rather heavily. But you're right. I think that Will certainly has more experience in some ways, maybe on paper. Do we even know Will's credentials on the shows at this point? Because I know in this episode, we get exactly what Miriam has studied and everything, all of her accomplishments and everything. Well, we know that he was repairing 
boats, boat motors or something. And we know that he was a cop. They, they've said that, but that's, that's about it. Right. Okay. So then maybe on paper, Miriam might look like um, a better fit in certain ways. And yet, like you said, Will seems to have more of that hands-on experience, which I, I would probably say as well that is the reason why uh, Jack might trust him more in some of these circumstances that could be potentially dangerous. Well, and I also, and I also think that because Will has is a profiler and is a teacher, but has seen so much, uh, basically really <laughs> messed up stuff, uh, that also affects the way you know that 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 relationship as well and what he's willing to put what Jack is willing to put Will through because he's seen more. He's been exposed to that more. Whereas with Miriam, yes, you know, yes, she is an agent in training and likely has, you know, we, we hear her, her background this week, but it's not like she's been around the same kind of uh, violence and, and depravity that Will has seen so regularly. So I think that also makes him less trepidatious about, about Will because he feels like, will should be able to handle this stuff more because he's been around it more whereas with miriam um she is very fresh and new to all this so when she goes missing i think it's an even more jarring loss for for jack than if it had been sort of reversed if that makes i don't know if that makes sense no it certainly (laughs) does i think uh just sticking with jack crawford steve do you have any moral issues with him essentially baiting the Chesapeake, Chesapeake Ripper into proving that he's still out there. Uh, I mean, it, it's, I mean, it's a, I think it's a fairly common thing to do. If, if any of you have actually seen or read uh, the red dragon book, it, it's a, it's something they do in there. And I, I actually think they, they do similar things later, like in this, in the second season, they do it as well in a very different way. Um, but no, I mean, it's, it's actually a, Although they don't do it with Lecter, they do it with another serial killer in Red Dragon where they set up a profile of him that is completely wrong. I think I think they even call him, say he's a homosexual, and that gets the serial killer very angry. And that makes him sort of lash out in a way that was reckless and revealing himself. And I think that's kind of what they're hoping is going to happen here. But this is it's interesting because um by baiting the Chesapeake Ripper, and and I think this is the you know this is the episode where we see the direct tide to that being Lecter. That it's I think, and I didn't go back and watch the episodes before this, uh, right before today, but uh, I think it's the first time we actually see Lecter get a little emotional and possessive of his work before he seems happy to sort of stand back and let people do the guessing, but. Here he he's angry that that Gideon is sort of taking credit for this, and and we actually see like his facial like Lecter's facial expressions change a little bit, and and actually show some emotion. I don't know if pride is the right word, maybe it is uh, in his work, but he certainly doesn't want somebody else taking credit for it. And, and whether uh, and I think Crawford's aware that that serial killers in general uh, certainly want people to know that a certain killing is their work. And, and, and I think he's using that to his advantage. Well, what if instead of what Lecter does to prove that the Ripper is still out there in this episode, which is um, use the Miriam story to mm-hmm. his advantage. What, what if instead, you know, he killed Alana Bloom in this way? Isn't there a danger, I guess, of uh, things going terribly like haywire? I know that Jack, 
we should give him some amount of confidence because he's been in this job for so long and, and tends to know how these things go down. But it, it is risky, right? Oh, sir. I mean, certainly. And they're, and they're aware of that. But it's I, I think the two things we know about. Well, the one thing in particular we know about Jack Crawford is that he tends to put the the capturing of the killers before just about anything. And that includes the safety of people under his command. I mean, I think that we've got two perfect examples of that in this, in this particular episode. And uh, like I said before, he, he feels very bad about it, but I, I don't think he ever really apologizes for it. So I think he'd rather take the more direct route. Well, and he, he feels bad about it, but he does it again, sort of. Right. So he feels bad about what happened with, with Miriam, but he, he ignores the warnings of Alana, you know, at various points, you know, specifically what we see from her in the, in the pilot. Uh, and then, you know, that, that, and then he, so that, even though he seems to have uh, had this really deep relation or deep remorse and very personal connection with what happened with Miriam, that doesn't mean that he's not going to use the tools at his disposal. Yeah, quite the opposite. I think that yeah. it's as I said, he 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 knows he does it and he keeps doing it. And uh, you, you'd think that I mean, yeah, you're, you were right before about Will Graham was was never an agent. He was a, a teacher there. I think he was a homicide detective before that and, and worked in the FBI's crime lab. But he was never an agent, although he carries a gun, um, at least in this episode, I noticed he did. But um, yeah, so this this isn't even someone who who has signed on to have their lives put in danger by this job, really. Um, so, yeah, he should feel doubly guilty. But, yeah, like you said, he Will is more useful to him off the leash uh, than protected. So so I don't, I don't think in his mind he sees that he has a choice. Well, and I think they do uh, have – they do a good job of, you know, demonstrating, yes, he doesn't necessarily – learn from what happens with Miriam and have that shape his treatment of Will. But he's also, they've been really successful because it's been, this is the sixth episode of the first season and how many serial killers have they found? <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, there's that too. Yeah. Okay. In this episode, Jack visits Hannibal's office, expecting him to give him information about Bella. Do you think that these two characters are friends at this point or does that kind of depend on whose perspective you're looking from? I think by the end of the episode, they are friends. They, they are what an external perspective would call friends and what Jack would call friends and maybe even what Hannibal would call friends. But of course, Hannibal is not like other people. So I don't know if it's really possible for him to have a friend or be a friend but that that conversation that we get at the end of the episode by the fire is uh, it's it's lovely and it's then of course the start by the start of the conversation is lovely when we get the reveal and cut back it's horrifying but i don't know how you could call them anything other than friends at least in relation to how that term can be applied to hannibal at all right I mean, it's important, I think, that you make that distinction between an external view of that and then also from each character's perspective. Um, because I would say from that that scene in which Jack does visit Hannibal's office, he those expectations might be um, maybe too much. I'm not sure. I don't know if that's something that a 
friend might do. But yeah, the the intimacy of it by the end of the episode in which he's talking to him, um, not just about Bella, but about Miriam, that I think is something else uh, kind of related to that. Uh, Steve, in, in that conversation, they're talking about hope and how the Ripper made Jack experience hope. And this opens up the capacity to hope for Bella as well. But what do you think of all of Hannibal's twisted machinations to accomplish this? Is he actually looking out for Jack or is he just playing games? I, I think he's getting a, a certain amount. I don't think he ever had the intention, has the intention of of killing Jack Crawford. Uh, I think he respects him to a certain degree. Uh, something uh, Hannibal seems to respond to a certain elegance in people and a certain uh, taste that people that show, but uh, he, I think there he is still having fun and they're just getting to know each other. So he's still having fun with Jack, as you said, giving him hope uh, on a couple different levels here and watching that be guilt doesn't seem to work on Crawford. So I think hope is what's going to end up torturing him uh, a great deal. At least that's what Hannibal thinks that, that hope is what's going to break him down. It's not going to be guilt. Uh, and yeah, it's a, it's kind of, it's a brilliant move because it's it, with anyone else. Hope is a great thing but with Crawford. It's something that will, that will make him weaker. I think. You mentioned that Hannibal recognizes um, certain qualities and people that he can respect in some ways. And it's yeah. also in this episode that he says the world is better with Bella in it. Right. So yes. Yes. It is kind of a, a weird way of addressing this. Cause I, I take it to be Hannibal again, probably being the, the most true version of his definition of friend as he can. So mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of like dragging Jack through this emotional hell to get him to a point where he can be a little bit more comfortable or in this case, hopeful with regards yeah. to his wife. Well, and that scene that we get earlier on with, with uh, Jack demanding or, or trying to get information about Bella from Hannibal. I think it's, I think it's significant uh, because it, I think it's what gets us to that scene at the end of the episode, because there, there are people, there are many people that Jack could go to, but he goes to Hannibal to talk, and uh, and then I think by not saying anything, by standing with his his <laughs> his professional ethics <laughs> uh, in that moment with Hannibal, um, I think I think I think Jack then later respects Hannibal more, and uh, because of that, because even though he wants information, he knows that. Hannibal shouldn't give it to him. So if Hannibal did, he would respect him less. And so then he wouldn't open up as much maybe at the end. So, yeah. And, and also just the staging of those two scenes and when they're looking at each other and when they aren't like, I think it's significant that they're both looking at the fire in that last scene, as opposed to, you know, they're much more looking at each other in the earlier scene. Um, but yeah, I, I think not only is it a nice scene, but it, it really is necessary to, kind of move that relationship forward to where we are at the end of the episode. Okay, you've mentioned the sequence a couple of times now, and I wanted to bring it up specifically, this final extended flashback that we get. Uh, because if we think about how flashbacks have functioned so far, I think they all have done very different things. Will's flashbacks aren't exactly his flashbacks. It's him getting into the minds of killers and victims and, and reenacting those crimes. 
uh, Jack's flashbacks in this episode feel very matter-of-fact to me, which I think really suits his character. This last one, though, is Hannibal's, and I think that the only one that we've gotten of Hannibal's up until this point is that very brief mention after he says something about the rabbit who couldn't quite get away, and it's just a very quick cut. But this is a very long one, and it's almost like a mini horror film, kind of hmm. reminiscent of a scene that we get in the film Red Dragon. Uh, can you describe your reaction to this sequence in terms of its content and how it's shot? Well, thinking about it in that context, actually, I'm I'm sort of... Because I didn't key into it being Hannibal's memory, though obviously it is. But my through line for all those flashbacks was very much Miriam. Um, and, and so I was thinking about it more in relation to her than to Hannibal. But thinking about it in that context, I'm actually a little surprised they didn't change up the the aesthetic of it a little bit. Yeah, you know, have Hannibal remember things in a different way. So having Hannibal remember things in black and white white feels kind of weird. Um, but I think it's a, a lovely sequence. And uh, and it, as I was watching it, I spent the entire scene wondering when Hannibal knew he was going to uh, attack her, as he does. And um, yeah, it, it's. It was. I remember watching this when it first aired, and it was very stark because it was the first time that we saw Hannibal physically attack anyone. Uh, we have that implication in, in the previous episode, like you said, with the rabbit, but but that's it. Anything else could easily just be the show messing with us. And so, it, when I was watching this the first time through, as they as the episodes aired, it was no. I know you really like this Hannibal guy, but sorry. We're not just messing with you. He is a horrible monster who does stuff like, you know, attack this lovely uh, Anna, Ch Anna Chomsky. And um, so so having it, that demonstration of his power and then to cut back to from what had been a lovely, very supportive scene to realize not only, you know, did did he attack uh, Miriam, but he's now sitting there trying like holding Jack's hand basically, as he's talking about how much that messed him up and he's being a supportive friend. And so he, and he really just, he is evil to be able to do that. <laughs> uh, Steve, did you enjoy the sequence? If that's the right word? I, I really did because it, it's uh well, for, for one reason, just being, I, I don't, I haven't mentioned this yet. I, I was for a long time, just completely obsessed with these books and these movies and this storyline and these characters. So the, I, the the one little moment where Hannibal takes his shoes off to to sneak up on Miriam is right out of Red Dragon. It's like he does that exact same thing except when he's attacking Will uh, in the in the big moment where he guts him basically. Um, so I love that little little moment because I mean you wouldn't you wouldn't really it's a it's a touch that is very so deliberate on Brian Fuller's part. Uh, and I love the way he drops those little moments in there. But just as a, I mean, just as a, it's just a great, a great flashback. And you're right, it was, I, I, like I said, I hadn't gone back and watched the first few episodes leading up to this one, but I was pretty sure I remembered it being the first time we saw Hannibal actually get his hands dirty. Uh, because you're right, it, it, up to this point, it could have been, they were sort of playing it like, well, maybe it's him, maybe it's not him that's doing all these things. And, um, to actually see it though, and this is sort of the coming out episode uh, where where Hannibal finally shows his true colors in a lot of different realms, but certainly as a killer uh, or as an abductor or as a seducer, um, 
yeah, he, it's kind of all, it's kind of beautifully wrapped up in that moment. And the seducer being, I'm talking about he's seducing Jack Crawford, basically, because that's, that, as we find out later, that's sort of his thing is that he doesn't kill everybody. Sometimes he recruits them in a way. And that's sort of what he's been doing with, with Jack for a lot of this, uh, a lot of the, the sh- first season, at least. You you mentioned the taking off of the shoes. I also, and we've mentioned this on the podcast before, just really love the set design in Hannibal's office. To, yeah. to see him climbing up the ladder, back down the ladder, it's it's beautifully represented, I think, on the screen. And that's a big joy for the, the sequence for me. Um, and in response to Kate, that moment that he kind of decides, well, I'm going to have to, to kill her, I think... As soon as she stands up, and she's basically said, well, it was a long shot. You know, he has the option there to just let her go. And yet he brings up, well, I do have my notebooks from back then, if you'd like <laughs> to see them. So there must be something that he senses in her that, you know, she is a very intelligent person and will probably catch on to something here. Well, I th- is my question for you guys, uh, is that when he decides or does he decide... As soon as she's made the connection, you used to be a doctor, doctor, <laughs> and and maybe they're you know you're one of the people I would investigate. Uh, and nobody else has made that connection for him at this point. Basically, people just forget that he used to actually be a surgeon. Yeah. It doesn't really ever come up. So as soon as she's made that connection, uh, is that when he decides? When do you guys think he decides? Yeah, it's funny because I remember the first time I saw it, I thought in my head it was that when she saw those drawings, that's when it, that's when he knew he had to get rid of her. But, but now I've watched it again. I'm like, Oh no, wait, he, he didn't bring down those notebooks (laughs) before, you know, (laughs) he didn't have them with him when he was coming down the ladder. So clearly it was a whole, the whole thing was a ruse. I don't, I don't know exactly know what it was, but I think he's, I think he sensed an intelligence in her, just enough of an intelligence in her to say, okay, she's gotten this far. She's going to, it's going to, she's going to, even if she believes what she's saying right now, it's going to come back to me again. This is, we're going to have to deal with this. And, and he's right. And he, you know, he, no one knows that she's there. Um, so yeah, who, who would, who would possibly make the connection between her and him? But it's a, yeah, I, I think the minute she walked in the door, she was toast. So yeah, I, I guess I had a similar reaction in terms of my multiple viewings. The first time I thought it was as soon as she saw the, the wounded man picture, but it has to happen before that. And I don't know. I guess my initial reaction this time was as soon as he invites her to stay to look at the, the notebooks. But uh, is is just knowing that he's a doctor enough? Maybe if this... Well, it wasn't. It wasn't just that knowing he was a doctor. He was directly connected. Somehow, wasn't wasn't Certainly, that the yeah. thing that, that with the? Yeah, it wasn't that. He, it was that. She, not only did she remember, oh yeah, you're a doctor, but she she, she then went because he wasn't actually involved with any of the patients, but she had done the legwork to see he was working that night, even though he didn't have any theoretical involvement theoretical involvement with this person. 
but he was there at the same time. Like she made that connection of looking well, not only should I check out his actual doctors, but who else was working that night? So it showed a diligence from her. It showed uh, creativity and, and like you said, Steve, intelligence. He can, he recognizes in her that this is what she's like. This is how clever she is. And she's not even an agent yet. She has like no experience. She will remember this and come and make, make a connection in the future. Um, And so at some point in that conversation, he decides what he's going to do. And that is another thing that that scene does so well. And really all the flashbacks, all the flashbacks, but that scene in particular, she is really smart. We like her and we respect her. And maybe by, because this is, I don't know if people will consider this spoilers and I apologize if they, if they do, Sean and and Steve, you guys have read the book, so you know more if this is a spoiler. But uh, I have heard that the her method of realizing that we get in this scene that of seeing the drawings and making that connection um, is actually the realization given to Will in the books. And so by give by taking um, the the realization moment of the main character in the books and giving it to this just introduced you know very young kind of a stand-in for Clarice almost uh, that that goes a long way towards equating her in our minds with Will and somebody of his caliber. Uh, you're right. That that's actually exactly how it plays out right before. It, 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 she basically is just filling in for Will f- from Red Dragon. It's he he comes into Lecter's office investigating a killing and finds. I honestly don't remember if it was drawings, but it might have been uh, on in his office. And that's when Lecter comes up without his shoes on and and slashes him across the abdomen. So yeah, that's pretty much exactly how it plays out in the book. Yeah, and I think that's fair game for yeah. not being spoilers because I don't you know after all this Brian Fuller. His series is very different, so I don't think that any of the listeners yeah. should be too upset with that. Yes. All right, let's move on. I wanted to talk about Eddie Izzard. So first of all, uh, Steve, what are your initial opinions of Abel Gideon and Eddie Izzard in this role? I, I remember my initial reaction the first time I saw it, and I, you know, I am a diehard Eddie Izzard fan. I just saw him do a, his one man, his latest one man show in Chicago a few weeks ago. So I, I never miss a chance to see him. I always try to watch any show he pops up on or movie. But um, I remember thinking for the first time, and you know, it was only six six episodes in roughly at this point that this is a. It seemed like a weird time to bring in someone who makes a living being larger than life because everything about this show was so, in a strange way, so low key and so understated. And, and he brings something uh, usually that's that's much bigger than everyone else in the room. But I think he he did a pretty solid job reeling it in. I, I'll give I'll give uh, Michael Reimer all the credit for that. Um, uh, he's a he's a terrific television director, um, and and he's usually brought in for television episodes that are key episodes. Uh, in a series, uh, obviously, if you go back to the Battlestar Galactica era, uh, he did the first and last episodes of that. So, uh, and many others in between. But I mean, I mean Eddie, Eddie. Um, but the character itself is fascinating because I think, at least in this first season, he is he is sort of the I don't want to say callback, but it is a callback to the Hannibal Lecter that we got to know in the films. Um, He's a little more out there. He's a little less subdued. Um, and there are just some some moments that are 
right out of Silence of the Lambs and Red Dragon, or I, I guess Manhunter uh, and Red Dragon, that uh, right up to the chair being next to the cell. I mean, it's 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 great. It's a great use of a character to... Because I think at that point, there's still six episodes in, you're still trying to find your audience. So any references that seem familiar to the audience, I think are work to the advantage of the show. And I think that between the Clarice parallels and the Lecter parallels uh, that Anthony Hopkins played, I think that was, there was a little bit of that going on here, but I, th- I thought he did a pretty solid job actually. That's, that's great that you mentioned uh, he's kind of the other version of Hannibal Lecter. Cause that's something that I didn't even notice. And now that you say it, it, it obviously makes so much sense. It's almost like, we get the Mas Mikkelsen, the new Hannibal, and also the Anthony Hopkins Hannibal in the same series for these brief moments. And that's really spectacular. Yeah. Um, and of course, the new Hannibal hates the old Hannibal <laughs> so much. He considers him so, you know, vulgar and rude and obvious. He's an, and, an imposter. Come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> taking credit for his work is unacceptable. It's yeah, absolutely. I, I I'm a big Eddie Izzard fan too. I really enjoy. I, I have enjoyed. I can't think actually of a TV performance of his I haven't enjoyed. Uh, I really like The Riches, even yeah. though there are flaws with that show. But that's a very underrated, I think, show series and performance from him. Uh, but I think he's great here because I, I was as soon as I saw the name come up the first time I watched this episode, I was excited because I'm a big Eddie Izzard fan. But uh, then to just watch him have fun. And at the time, the first time watching it, it seemed like a really small performance from him. Sort of like you said, Steve, he, he can be bigger. Um, and he, and he, there's a theatricality to Izzard that, uh, that, you know, that's part of why he gets cast a lot of the times. Because uh, they want that element of his personality. And just look no further than the remake of, Mock- you know, that Mockingbird Lane pilot, if you want to <laughs> see the more theatrical Eddie Izzard. But uh, it, my first time watching it, it seemed like a really subdued performance. Going back and watching it now, it seems so straightforwardly uh, comedic and and um, almost weaking at the audience. And so, to you know, to have that different reaction the first time through, and then once you're more familiar with the rest of the world, to see... The way he's inserted into it, it feels like such canny uh, casting and just that that Brian Fuller sense of humor to put in this larger than life uh, comedian into the Hannibal role from the films. And then, you know, watch, you know, do do one of these things is not like the other, (laughs) like the show has done several times. It's it's just a lot of fun. I I always enjoy Eddie Izzard, though. Sean, what about you? He fits in remarkably well. And that larger-than-life quality isn't overbearing in this episode. So even in the first sequence that we get with him, uh, where he kills the nurse, there's no dialogue that he has there. We're first introduced to him just lying, uh, pretending to be unconscious on the floor. Or maybe he is unconscious and did something to his body to make it happen. I don't know. But it's, it's a fantastic performance in a role that shouldn't fit into Brian Fuller's version of Hannibal, but it does because Brian Fuller, like you said, Kate, also has a a wonderful and specific sense of humor. And so he somehow manages to get that out of Izzard without Izzard making his scenes pop too heavily. So I don't know. It's a weird marriage of talent that somehow works. And, And Steve mentioned Michael Reimer's part in that, and I wanted to to follow off of that, Kate, and ask, 
what do you see happening there in um, those two separate interviews that end up looking like a joint interview? What does that tell you about Abel Gideon? Well, it tells me that uh, Abel Gideon is Abel Gideon. So he's he seems like he responds. The fact that they can splice those two interviews together tells us that he's not ad- adapting his answers or his his um, demeanor for the, them differently, or else they would show us that. And so he seems to, rather than tailoring his answers to Alana and then separately to Will, he he is, you know, who he thinks he is right now. So he is just, that's just him. And so they, they're able to do that. Um, also, I think that's just a way of saving some time and trying to be more artistic with it, taking advantage of what you can do in television that you, you can't do in, in a book, for example, in the same way. But, um, but yeah, that, that's the main, the main thing I, I get from that sequence. Steve, do you think it gives any indication of how Abel's attitude towards law enforcement or powers of authority factor in? Um, that he can, I guess, manipulate them and get away with telling them the exact same thing, pretty much like from a script. Possibly, I mean, possibly it does. I mean, there are certain he he's, he proves he may not have been like this when he was before he was in this prison flash hospital, but he's certainly become very adept at mimicking things. I think we've learned that from his the way he killed the nurse. Um, so yeah, it, it's entirely you do get a sense uh, that there may be. I, I mean, I, just knowing a little bit about. Lecter's capabilities. I, I, I know when I first watched it, I thought he Lecter is somehow manipulating him, um, and I honestly don't remember how it plays out. But um, but it felt like he was yeah reciting something. I don't know if it had so much to do with authority as just as just sticking to a script. And I don't know if it was yeah so much about spitting in the face of these of these doctors or medical professionals uh, or investigators, but. Um, I think it was more just if you stick to the script, there's going to be some doubt about the identity of the Ripper and, and whether the Ripper is in prison or not. But it, but initially I thought, because I've seen you, there have been other incidences in the Lecter uh, pantheon of him feeding information to people either outside or inside of prison. Uh, so that I thought for a while that might have been what was going on there. Okay, let's talk the other addition to this episode, which is the somewhat iconic Dr. Chilton. How does Raul Esparza's Chilton fit into this universe for you? The, yeah, it was fun watching this episode again because, of course, anybody who listened to the um, the first set of podcasts we did for season two uh, will know that there are certain characters that are recurring in this world that I particularly enjoy and uh, i don't think it's a spoiler to say that dr chilton comes back at some point guys <laughs> for those who are listening for the first time but uh the this is one where i really enjoy the character right away but he's still you know this is his first episode and it feels like they're still kind of figuring him out and finding his exact voice uh that'll come you know the next time we see him i'm i'm guessing it's been a while since i i you know so i, I look forward to watching more Chilton scenes, but uh, he doesn't feel like he's quite himself. That just like it took a couple episodes for, you know, Hannibal didn't feel his like with his costuming and some of these other elements of him. They weren't quite there. They were close, but not quite there in the pilot. 
that's sort of how I feel about Chilton in this episode. But I like that immediately he his his relationship with these other uh, main characters is interesting. And, you know, I, I like that that Will Graham is, is kind of a big deal. I, I like that he's like, oh, you're you do that thing. Would you would you do that thing? Cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I I really enjoy that, and again, it, it helps it feel like a more complete world. Well, the the other, I mean, the funniest part about that particular scene is Chilton is practically drooling over the thought of having the chance to analyze Will. Like he's and and he, you can just see this. It's like a, a passion in his eyes to just get into Will's brain a little bit. And I mean that's that's a little foreshadowing too to what happens in season two. But there, you can almost a lot of the um, what drives Chilton from this point forward is getting a chance to get into Will's head, uh, officially or unofficially. And uh, that's a, and the other the other great reason to have Chilton around is that nobody on the show respects him. They all think he's an idiot. They make every line of dialogue aimed at him as an insult, uh, whether it's from Lecter, whether it's from Will, whether it's from Alana or Jack. I mean, just everybody, Gideon, everybody thinks he's an idiot. And, and, he's, and he is. And, and he's just a great punching bag. Um, and he, and he, he knows it, but he, he, he steadfastly refuses to accept it. Uh, yeah, no, he's, 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 he's the character I was, at the time, probably the most excited to see. Yeah, Lana's notes are useful, more or less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, and I think that's a good point, Steve, uh, the, about him drooling because it really Will's just the prettiest girl at the prom, isn't he? All the <laughs> psychiatrists want to analyze him, but uh, that con- that contrasts or contrasts the you know Alana's reaction to to Will, where she sort of removes herself and tries not to do that or, or Hannibal who is obviously I- immediately drawn to Will. And then now we get Chilton. I look forward to a time when we meet a, a psychiatrist or someone in that field. Like it, th- that doesn't, you know, immediately just want to crack his head open and look inside. I guess that's the lesson we're supposed to learn is that that's uh, with, with abilities that are as successful as Will's that's never going to happen. <laughs> if you're if you're if you have even an iota of uh, respectability as a psychiatrist and you meet Will Graham, you know, you're just going to want to jump his brain, I guess. <laughs> I, uh, I definitely enjoyed as well the dinner scene between Hannibal, Chilton and Alana <laughs> and uh, the conversation that Hannibal and, and Chilton have in the kitchen there. Hannibal's very upfront about how he is kind of lenient with regards to things that are unorthodox in the field. And so we see Hannibal manipulating Jack in this episode in a certain way and for certain reasons and reasons that we've talked about and that I think are a little bit more complicated and maybe more respectful. Uh, but in this case, he's kind of getting into to Chilton's good graces and for no reason that I think is other than selfish. So, Well, I, 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 there was a part of me, I think that part of the reason he was asking him and sort of acting like he would have resorted to the similar, similar method is I think he was trying to get Chilton. I think Hannibal's trying to find out how Gideon knows what he knows. And he is trying to find out from Chilton if Chilton's the one that fed him that information about the, the uh, Chesapeake Ripper killings and, um, and I don't think he, I don't think it works. I don't think it. I don't think Chilton quite bites the way he 
the way he thinks he's going to. Um, but it is interesting that, you know, Hannibal, had, I, I, I've forgotten the name of the, what, what is it they call the method that they're, they're discussing? Psychic uh, driving. Yeah, driving. That uh, I, I mean, that Hannibal does that in spades almost every week. So uh, with, with Will especially. But uh, yeah, I think he's just there trying to find out how did Gideon know what he knows? And, and uh, I don't think it quite works out. So that, that part is still a mystery. My favorite part of that dinner scene with the three of them, though, I got to say, is is actually it's, it's watching Alana watch Hannibal manipulate Chilton because <laughs> she just has sort of this. Are you are you kidding me? Look on her face as she looks at Hannibal. But then she looks over to Chilton and it's working. And he's like and then there's this really, dude, how is this working on you? <laughs> expression. It's just it's wonderful. Hey. <laughs> right. Okay, here's your uh, psychoanalysis for the week. What is Hannibal's preference of Concord grapes, which are purple inside and outside, say about him as a person? He <laughs> calls them grapes with nothing to hide. Oh, well, I was going to have that be one of my devils in the details. Oh, okay. But I, I can do it now. I, I just like to think of that as a metaphor for Chilton, because there is nothing <laughs> different inside. It's just... <laughs> What you see on the surface, when you peel back the layers, you get more surface with Chilton. <laughs> That's the perfect way to describe that, because just like everybody else in the show, we are talking crap about Chilton. So, <laughs> cool We're in good that. company. Yeah. All right, we'll move on to uh, the three recurring segments of the podcast, the first of which, of course, will be Kate's classical corner. So, Kate, what can you tell us about the scoring and entree? Well, there's one classical piece used in this episode, and it's by Chopin, as mentioned a couple weeks ago. We're going to get more Chopin, and this is one of the, the times that we do. Chopin's Ballade number 1 in, in G minor, and the Chopin Ballades are are really very challenging. Um, I never learned any of them, but uh, but apparently they are among the more challenging repertoire that uh, Chopin ever uh, composed and uh, they're also absolutely gorgeous. Uh, so I'm not really sure how that relates to Chilton, the Chilton part of that dinner. But uh, there, there's a stillness at the start of the piece that then makes way to a more agitated or uh, a larger uh, sound later in the piece. And so that could be maybe the calm before the storm that we're going to get later. But on the whole, I think this is another example where it's just is really pretty. Uh, and so that's why we get it <laughs> in that dinner scene. I don't actually have very many comments about the music in this episode. Um, we haven't yet talked about the stag, but uh, the music for that scene is very uh, dissonant and it's very ominous. So I look forward to chatting about that a little bit later, maybe. And then uh, the, the other thing I'll say is that the, oh, we get really distinct rhythmic drums for Freddie when she's at the at the institute it's a very different sound than we've gotten to this point um so i th i really i noted that and maybe that's because she she's there with a purpose it's very energetic scoring and uh she's completely different from the other from everybody else in the show on the show right now all of our main characters she's a completely different beast and so maybe that's why there's that completely different scoring for her but the other thing i'll mention is that the um the music that we get at the opening of the episode is really our only indication uh, of what's specifically coming next, at least as far as I'm concerned, because we open and there's a guy lying on the floor. 
Uh, and it could be any number of things. It could be, oh, look, it's another victim. But instead, the scoring tells you, no, this is an action scene. This is a suspense scene. And as it, then as it unfolds, it, you know, we get what we get. But uh, it, it, it's very, uh, the very suspenseful scoring, incessant percussion, eighth notes with some chimes in there. And it, it really puts you on edge. And then when we get the projection from Will, we get very, we get a similar sound, but it has more feedback and more distortion because now it's Will in that position, not uh, Gideon. Um, so, yeah, and, and then the, again, I noted the drums, but a very different kind of drums in that scene as compared to what we get later with Freddie. Um, but yeah, we still get that kind of crackling sound that I've mentioned before. That's part of Will's projections, but, um, but with this, you know, this earlier music, another take on this earlier music as Will relives the, the, the opening scene. So those are my, my notes on the music. Not as many. Don't worry, gentle listeners. There will be so much Kate's Classical Corner next week, it's not even funny <laughs> as we get to episode seven. Oh, but yeah. I think that's enough for now. <laughs> yeah, and we still got a few things to talk about, including the second of our recurring segments, The Devil in the Details. So any little things that stood out in the episode, be they visual or otherwise, uh, humorous notes, sound cues, anything. And I'll begin by mentioning, again, in that dinner scene with Chilton, how he pours from the wine decanter into his own glass, and we usually see Hannibal doing this. And just by comparison, his pouring is so much more clumsy, and I'm so glad that Hannibal wasn't actually in the room as that was happening. Otherwise, we would have seen another vis- uh, visual uh, moment of anger on his face, I think. But, uh, Steve, what, what things stood out to you in this episode? Oh, my. Uh, details like that. Oh, wow. I wish I'd, I wish I'd been paying more attention. Um you know, the, 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 there, I don't know if this really counts because it's not a specifically visual thing, but um, the fact that for the first time, I think up to this point, and this may be as a result of him, of Jack Crawford feeling guilty and letting that sort of come to the surface a bit and boil over, is that he has to defend his own state of mind in one scene uh, where he, the, after the, the phone call, uh, from Abigail, the first one, and everyone's trying to convince him. Um, from Miriam, not Abigail. I'm sorry, Miriam. Yeah, yeah. That, that Miriam, um, the, the Miriam phone call, and him having to defend. He goes, and he specifically says, "I know when I'm awake." And it's such a like. When have they ever doubted him to that degree on the show up to this point? Um, and it's a weird little. Power, I don't know if it's a power shift thing or if they're spotting a weakness and they're sort of pouncing on him. But I thought that was such a strange moment in the show uh, where the, the staff is, is going after their boss and questioning his state of mind. Uh, so it's probably not exactly what you're, what you're looking no, for, but that counts. But I, counts. I, I love that that line really resonated with me for some reason. That's definitely, definitely devil in the details material. Yeah. That was great. Cause you also hear Jack call Brian Z he's getting a little annoyed with him yeah Uh, so that was good uh kate any details did you want to mention the stag right now uh well i don't have any details for that so so no okay (laughs) i'll I'll take care of that after you then okay yeah the scene with freddie um and this is my musical theater background uh pitch and lots of film watching uh coming to the fore but uh that scene with freddie when they're basically talking about how everybody hates her immediately made me think of 1776 and them all singing about how uh john adams is obnoxious and disliked because um, that's basically the position that freddie is in so 
I I enjoyed uh, that little moment, and uh, and the I think it's almost exactly that line of dialogue too. So it was particularly fun. And the other dialogue I have is we get our it's nice to have an old friend for dinner line in right. this week's episode as well, which was <laughs> which was pretty fun. Uh, a couple more from me, uh, Freddie, because when we first saw Freddie Lowndes in the second episode, right, Kate, you mentioned that she appears naked on the screen, which mm-hmm. was really unusual. And in this one, when she goes to visit Abel Gideon, she is the opposite. She's wearing a turtleneck and she has gloves on. You could hardly see any of her skin at all. And that only stuck out because of that comment that you had made. So you are making me see things. Good, because you've still broken me. I still hear half sentences everywhere on this show now, and it's all your fault. Right. Uh, the other thing I mentioned, uh, I think, Kay, you also mentioned earlier in the podcast about Clarice and Alana's walk down to Gideon's cell definitely reminded a lot of uh, Clarice's first walk to see Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. Well, the, the cha- having that chair sitting there, that's that chair or version of that chair is there in Silence of the Lambs. I mean, I don't know if any of the other cells had a chair right across from it, but that her whole walk up and the way she places it a certain distance from the window, it, it's, it, I haven't seen Silence of the Lambs in a while, but it felt very familiar for sure. And just to touch on the stag again, because I forgot that we have to mention it every week. Um, <laughs> let's see. This is the one where Will is kind of just sitting down, right? At his desk and it's the one where where jack and alana come in like it comes yes right so the the stag comes in and will's looking at it and then alana says something which sparks him to come back and it it is alana both alana and jack who are coming in at the same time but for me the the little detail there that made me um i guess analyze it partially was that it was alana's voice and so again we've mentioned a couple times how the stack can be tied somewhat to certain characters in certain situations. And and so far it's definitely been, I guess, more female centric. So if it's not Abigail, then it's somebody like Alana in this case. But uh, that's where I took that. Steve, do you have any thoughts on the image of the stag thus far? Yeah, I have one thought that goes through all two, both seasons, which is I don't quite understand how, <laughs> how it, like I'm trying to find if there's a, something that ties it, to everything, and I'm sure that there is, and I'm sure that I would love to sit down with with Ryan Fuller for a couple hours and have him explain it to me. But I I am at something of a loss. To, I I always know that something's wrong when he shows up, but I don't ever quite know what it's tied to directly. So I'm useless when it comes to the stag. This is my <laughs> moment to say I have no idea. Hey, that's okay. Yeah. You should listen to our <laughs> other podcast because we're more or less saying the same thing. Yeah, you're in good company because we have no freaking clue. <laughs> and I was glad it barely showed up in this one because I was afraid it was going to lead to a discussion of the stag. So it was just there for like five seconds and that was it. <laughs> Uh, any other details that either of you wanted to mention? Uh, the last thing I have is um, I, I just enjoy, again, the... Oh, my God. I just realized I'm about to make a horrible pun. I enjoy the cheek of the, the food design because we get tongue, and Chilton's been wagging his tongue hmm. about uh, about the Chesapeake Ripper, and and so we get them displayed very specifically and ornately in this... Uh, in this episode, in that dinner. So Chilton's been saying stuff he shouldn't be saying to Abel Gideon, which has 
put him where he's at. And certainly uh, Hannibal's not amused about that situation. So I like that that is the meal that they dine on. Hmm. All right. And let's move on to the section spoiled meat, which will be the section that contains future spoilers for this series, whether that's the rest of the season or for the second season. So if you've not watched and would like to remain free from spoilers, fast forward now. So, yeah, we get Will at the Baltimore State Hospital, and he's coming back. (laughs) The dialogue is great. I'm worried they won't let me out. Don't worry, I won't leave you here. (laughs) Not today. It's awesome. (laughs) I was actually, like, looking at the orderlies who were interacting with people, and we did not get the Jonathan Tucker character, which I didn't think would happen but that would have been too amazing much. yeah yeah i love how in the, i was watching this episode going son of a if if jack just hadn't poked hannibal miriam could have kept her arm right yeah and that was another thing that i wanted to mention in this section the arm like i know when we got the the mason scene from the end of last season where all he had to do because he had put him into the frame of mind was just say you know cut off your nose and that's what happens. I wonder if that was the same circumstance with Abigail and Miriam, where he was just like, Miriam, cut off your arm. Abigail, cut off your ear. Like, I want to see those scenes, regardless hmm. of how kind of demented they are. I, I don't want to see them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, man. Spoiled meat. Go for it. Anything that kind of stood out that got your ears perked. Well, the, aside from those couple of things, the only other thing I have for spoiled meat is that I really enjoy that we basically get the Will and Bev uh, buddy cop show for a few scenes there. Um, and again, that's sort of leading to what we're going to get at the start of season two with them. Um, but yeah, it's very much, you know, I could see them in an 80s movie after this episode. Yeah. And touching off of that, we also get the lighthouse with Miriam's arm. And that's, of mm-hmm. course, where Beverly's going to end up. The observatory? Or what, yes. what is that place? Lighthouse. Observatory, yeah. I don't know why I said lighthouse. Okay. Yes, the observatory. That's just that opening uh, conversation that we get with Jack and and Will was the main thing I took away. It was uh, very much a teacup moment for me. I was like, oh my god. Yeah. And because you know when they were writing this, they, they knew where they were going to end the season. Because it's such an iconic end to the season. Very deliberate. And so to watch them have fun with this, that's a, that's a conversation that makes sense in the context, but really that's the writers having fun with where they know this, the show is going to end up at the end of season one. I think this might be the first with the, with the way that the uh, Miriam abduction, I'll call it an abduction ends up happening. I, I, it's the first time I think I realized that Fuller was going to be moving, like changing things up a little and not sticking to the canon of of the books or the, even the movies that when, when he plays out her abduction, the way that, that uh, will, you know, almost dies in the books. Uh, I thought, Oh, he's not sticking to <laughs> who, you know, the, like there's certain people that you're like, well, these people have to stay alive because they're going to be in the silence of the lamb story that hasn't happened yet. And now we realize that's not necessarily true. Uh, so yeah, he's, this is, he's said, you know, he's, he's happy to pull things, uh, as he wants, you know, as at will, but at the same time, he's not going to necessarily, uh, devise his show around 
you know, prepping us for these other storylines that we already know. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's anybody's guess about who's going to stay alive, uh, on the show, which I love. I love that. Yeah. That's, that's a big joy. I think of kind of watching in a weird way. The other question I have about this episode is how, how did you guys feel about the black and white? The decision, I, I don't know if that was in the script or just the director, uh, Michael Reimer's decision to have all the flashbacks, you know, have that. Did it did it work for you? It was very jarring for me because this is such a visual and such a colorful show. Um, I, th- I thought it was effective, even just for keeping the plot line straight, you know, keeping track of where we were. But uh, I don't, it, it felt odd to have, an episode of Hannibal that, you know, so much of it is in black and white. The distinction that you made uh, when we were talking about flashbacks, I thought was interesting because if it had just been Jack's memories that were in black and white, then that would have made sense to me just based on his character. But to have that last one, I'm not sure. It's such a stark difference compared to all of the really vibrant reds that we see on the series that, I I would kind of wonder if that was a directorial decision or not, um, but I don't know. Could you do – you don't necessarily need visual cues to portray that you're doing a flashback, so um, I don't even know. Do we get more of these in the future that are in black and white? I honestly can't remember. I mean I want to say no um... – and, and the other thing that made it stand out is because this is a show that blends the dream world and the awake world, especially with Will, so much that to have, uh, have to, to have such a distinct, you know, separation between the past and, and the present seems like an odd choice as well. I don't know. I guess maybe it works within the context of it being the Miriam Last story being somewhat self-contained and almost like a, a miniature horror film, like I said. Uh, so maybe through that lens, you can look at it in a classic uh, way. I, I can honestly believe that it was strictly a device to keep keep the flashbacks separate. I mean, just in the, because as much as the Jack Crawford and Miriam scenes probably could have functioned as color <laughs> flashbacks, the scene with her and Lecter at the end it might have confused some people a little bit, um, and which, I mean, you know, now with us having talked about it for over an hour, it probably seems silly to think that. But I think that honestly, that could have been a little a little more confusing for some people. Um, I, I, I got to say, I just believe that I don't think it's a style choice as much as it's a storytelling choice, just helping to keep the flashbacks separate from the dream world, from the real world. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's how it felt to me. Well, and Jack has the different facial hair to help give a visual cue, and, and Hannibal's just Hannibal. So yeah, exactly, exactly. He doesn't have that same, you know. I was just curious your thoughts on that, so yeah. that works. <laughs> um, yeah. But that's good for this week, I believe, so we'll end the discussion here. Kate and I will be back next week to talk about Season 1, Episode 7, Sorbet. Uh, thank you again, Steve Procopi from Ain't It Cool News for coming in and talking with us. It's been of great. Where can our listeners find you online? Just ain'titcool.com. Perfect. And Kate, where can our listeners find you online? 
You can find me mostly at over at soundonsite.org where I'm the TV editor. You can leave lots of, uh, you, you can find my re written reviews there as well as, of course, a little podcast about the rest of TV, the TV that's actually airing week to week. Uh, and then, of course, I'm on Twitter. I'm at the Televerse. Uh, I love talking about TV there, so drop me a line. Let me know what you guys are thinking about season one of Hannibal so far. And then, of course, I do also write for the AV Club. So if you want to read up about uh, some Blackadder or Spartacus this summer, that's the place to go. And you'll find my written reviews at Sound On Site. Otherwise, they will appear at tvovermine.com. But that's it. Once again, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. This has been another episode of This Is Our Design.